Well, good afternoon, folks. Happy Thursday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is afternoon on 770-CHQR. Like I say, a lot to get to this afternoon, and a lot we're watching. We're expecting an announcement today at some point from the federal government confirming what's already been widely reported this week, uh, that among other things, as of September 30th, the uh, controversial, much-maligned ArriveCan app will no longer be mandatory. may not be going away altogether, but you b- won't be required to use it, to have it if you're entering Canada. So that's happening today. We'll also talk about what's going on with gas prices in Alberta. Looks as though October 1st, we're going to see a partial return of Alberta's excise tax. Not the full 13 cents a liter, uh, but 4.5 cents per liter. We understand. We'll get to the latest on that. 403-974-8255 is the number. Obviously, a lot happening around the situation in Ukraine and keeping an eye on what's happening in Russia. As Vladimir Putin now rushes to mobilize tens of thousands, maybe more, of Russians into action to pour into the invasion of Ukraine, which is not going well. This has been the focus this week as world leaders have gathered at the United Nations. Now, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is back in Ottawa today, and we will get to some of what happened in question period. Uh, But this was uh, the prime minister last night asked about the actions, the threats from Vladimir Putin. You mentioned Putin's nuclear threats in your comments. Do you think he's bluffing? Putin has fundamentally miscalculated in a whole bunch of different ways. He massively underestimated, first and foremost, the strength, the resilience, the courage of Ukrainians when it comes to defending their homeland, defending their rights to choose their own future. He also massively miscalculated when he thought democracies around the world would not stand up to defend the very core principles that underlie our democracies freedom to choose one's own future, territorial integrity, sovereignty. Putin was wrong, and he is right now failing and flailing in his response to to this situation. Um, We need to continue to demonstrate the strength and solidarity, not just of countries around the world, but of people around the world. I don't think I heard a direct answer as to the bluff, but I'd also like to ask you, as you talk about allies continuing to offer support for Ukraine, what are the next steps here concretely that that Canada can do to to help? Uh, Canada is going to continue uh, to strengthen our sanctions. We are going to continue to send military aid to Ukraine. We're going to continue to be there for humanitarian assistance. We're going to continue facilitating uh, measures to counter the global food crisis, uh, whether it's with our expertise in exporting and shipping grain around the world. Uh, We're going to continue to stand uh, for the principles uh, that matter so deeply to Canadians and people all around the world uh, with absolute uh, firmness and, uh, and solidarity with people in Ukraine and continue to encourage and, and uh, uh, be there uh, for countries, particularly in the global south, who are facing difficult times as they too stand against Russia. Okay, so joining us for the latest on what's been unfolding this week in Russia, how Canada and other countries need to respond to this whole situation. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alexander Lanoska, Assistant Professor of International Relations, Balsillie School of International Affairs, University of Waterloo, fellow with UK-based Council on Geostrategy. Professor Lanoska, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you very much for having me. It's quite remarkable what's coming out of Russia over the last day or so. Uh, the protests, uh, people trying to flee, some some pushback, which is is dangerous in Putin's Russia, but some pushback against this idea of a large mobilization. What what have you made of, of everything you've been seeing? First of all, well, I think what we're seeing is quite frankly a a basic breakdown in the social contract that Putin has had with Russian society. Keep in mind that. He has legitimated his authoritarian rule on the basis that he might take away Russians' rights, but he would deliver the sort of prosperity and stability that was absent during the 1990s. Now what is happening is that not only are Russian citizens' rights completely um, taken away from them, but uh, there's no stability whatsoever, and indeed Putin is single-handedly trashing the economy. So there will be certain negative consequences for society. Those will remain to be seen. But as for the actual impact on the battlefield, I don't really, I don't really suspect that this will really change the game, so to speak. But again, war is contingent. Anything could happen. But still, I think this is a bad decision on the part of Putin. All right. And I think to casual or layman observers, the idea of, you know, sending in tens of thousands, maybe more than 100,000 more troops uh, seems like an escalation. But I, I think there's some, some nuance and understanding. Like, what is it that Putin's sending in? I think the, the troops that are already there, the Russian troops seem to be ill-equipped, ill-trained. And the idea that he's just going to find himself 100,000 or more professional troops, I mean, that, that's not realistic, is it? If anything, it is an escalation, but against Russian society, not really against uh, Ukraine. After all, for the reasons that you pointed out, those forces already deployed within Ukraine have struggled with basic uh, personnel shortages, uh, terrible logistics, a poor command authority. They've been hit um, in, uh, with, with regards to various precision strikes mostly uh, hitting their ammunition depots. And so their own combat capabilities have significantly traded. And so bringing in large numbers of partially mobilized or mobilized forces seems like a big deal. But if you consider how Russia has let its own mobilization structures uh, atrophy for the last several years, that is already experienced tremendous logistical challenges with, with what it's already got in Ukraine already, those challenges will only ratchet up. And there's only so much that Russia can really send in, so many that Russia can send in at a given time to fight within Ukraine itself. So there are going to be serious constraints that Russia will uh, have to address. And those constraints are not those that can be simply wished away by some sort of legislative fiat or presidential decree. We think back to when this was more of a hypothetical, like what if this goes badly for Putin? What if he's facing a disaster in Ukraine? What might he do? What is he capable of? Does this action now seem to line up with maybe what we might have expected from Putin to, to double down, to, to start throwing around, you know, ominous and, and reckless threats? Is, is this kind of in line of maybe what we expected? So I think what Putin's trying to do with this partial mobilization or even covert mobilization, because it seems like it's actually uh, at a national level, uh, is that he's trying to provide some sort of political cover from those nationalists who have been demanding more and more from uh, this Russian state to send into uh, Ukraine. And so 
there may be a sense that indeed he's trying to address the actual battlefield situation within Ukraine itself, especially in light of recent losses. But I think really what he's trying to do is provide some degree of coverage to protect his right flank. But again, for the reasons I pointed out already, this will send train certain unintended consequences that will be very difficult for the Kremlin to manage. Right. And if this continues to spiral, I mean, where, where does all this go from here? I don't know, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that this will, again, change the terms of the basic armed conflict uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine has a number of advantages. This mobilization will put increased uh, levels of stress on Russia's very shaky logistical uh, structures already. Of course, I don't want to dismiss uh, the violence that would ensue. This would obviously mean much more bloodshed, even more devastation. But in terms of the actual fighting, I still think Ukraine has many advantages that will not simply be erased by dint of this mobilization. What is interesting is that uh, it could mean certain ramifications for Putin's rule, precisely because those areas where non-ethnic Russians are being the most mobilized, that this could have implications for uh, how those local societies might like increasingly chafe under Moscow's rule. Right, yeah, and obviously, uh, you know, that's the big question, to what extent this could weaken Vladimir Putin. Now, I, I guess in the meantime, do you, do you get the sense, is there any urgency in the coming days and weeks here for Ukraine to make further gains, solidify those gains, uh, you know, before Russia starts pouring in more troops or tries to change some of the political realities on, on the ground? Is there an opportunity here for Ukraine to move further? I suspect that there will be certain incentives, indeed, to step up certain offensive operations to retake as much territory. I think those incentives were already there precisely because of concerns about winter. Not that uh, Ukraine will be uniquely uh, vulnerable as a result of winter. Winter is both, goes both ways. It will affect frontline Russian uh, soldiers uh, quite considerably. So I do think that this will probably push Ukraine to maybe step up some activities. At the same time, I will not want to overstate it. And precisely because winter is coming, that is also going to have certain implications for how Russia will go about this mobilization. And indeed, I think will only increase certain difficulties even more. I mean, certainly I think this is, you know, the, the success Ukraine has enjoyed has vindicated the approach from the U.S. and the West to, to provide it with the tools it needs. Uh, you know, maybe Canada hasn't been as, as committed as others on that front. What, what would you like to see from the West more generally, from Canada more specifically in the weeks ahead here? I think the premium now is for providing more ammunition, more winter supplies, uh, more financial assistance, especially as the government Kiev will have uh, difficulties in uh, making certain payments. Uh, those are obviously things that Canada can certainly do in coordination with its NATO allies. All right, some important days and weeks ahead. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate the insight, Professor. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me again. That's Alexander Linoska, Assistant Professor of International Relations, University of Waterloo, also with the Council on Geostrategy. So obviously uh, some important days ahead, as mentioned. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Thursday afternoon. Our number is 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. Plenty to get to over the course of this hour. Let's start with the news out of Ottawa. It is not a false alarm. As of September 30th, 
Arrive Can, the much maligned app, will no longer be mandatory for those entering Canada, Canadians returning to Canada. Uh, We are also dropping the vaccine requirement for those entering Canada. We are dropping the uh, random testing requirement for those entering Canada. There's still some cabinet discussion happening this afternoon regarding masking on trains and planes. So no final decision yet. But yes, Arrive Can, which has been a source of some controversy and frustration, will no longer be mandatory as of September 30th. Well, it was a false alarm yesterday at Thompson Rivers University uh, in Kamloops as we were chatting uh, with our next guest, uh, abruptly uh, ending that conversation. But things have uh, developed over the past 24 hours. We now have uh, more concrete things to discuss regarding ArriveCan's future. As mentioned, it will be optional. Which begs the question, what is it there to do? What is the purpose of ArriveCan? After September 30th, what is the purpose of it now over the past few months? Anyway, Matt Malone, a law professor at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, specializing trade secrets, confidential information, has written extensively about some of the many issues with ArriveCan. Uh, Matt, glad uh, the university's not uh, on fire, or wasn't on fire, but um, appreciate you making some time for us here again today. Of course. Thank you for having me back. I think someone didn't want to write their exam. <laughs> I would imagine that probably happens a lot at, at universities anyway, so that, that was good. But, um, yeah, listen, uh, as mentioned, it seems like things have, have moved over the last 24 hours from what we uh, what's being reported. The prime minister has already signed off on this. So as of September 30th, the can will become optional. Um, as you've written, as you alluded to yesterday, I mean, that that's the right decision. That, that's something you were, were hoping to see. Yeah, it's a great move. Um, There was a lot of uncertainty that it was actually going to happen because ArriveCan is imposed through an emergency measure. And so this measure was set to expire on September 30th, but the measure is actually one that has been, uh, the underlying measure has been renewed many times, like something like 60 to 70 times. And it's always been renewed one or two days in advance of the deadline. So it was a little bit of... um, you know, a tender hooks type thing where we were waiting until the very end to see if this was going to happen. So there was a lot of uncertainty. I, I had a lot of disbelief that it was going to happen, but it's it's really good to see that they're shifting the the use of the app from voluntary to oh sorry from mandatory to voluntary. Yeah. And so I think that's a really um, that's the right move, and it, it, it's the move that they should have taken from the get go from day one to build trust in the app. Um, you know, everyone, every privacy commissioner in the country said for coronavirus health apps to build trust in the use of these apps you need to unroll the you need to have a rollout that's that's based on voluntariness and openness and that's how ArriveCan was introduced but it changed very quickly it did but but why right it sort of gets to this underlying issue what what was the reason why we needed ArriveCan what was its purpose what was the justification are we able to pin that down Well, the justification shift over time, which was also one of the concerns with the app, um, when it was unveiled in April 2020, the the stated purpose was contact tracing to replace some of the the paperwork. Um, That eventually disappeared from the website. And now if you look on the ArriveCan, Government of Canada website, contact tracing isn't mentioned at all. But what the app did was it collected, once the vaccines were introduced and developed, the app started collecting um, information pertinent to the vaccines. Prior to that, it was collecting information pertinent to sort of, uh, you know, the quarantines that folks had to undergo when they entered the country for a set period of time. Um, And so it, it basically, in a nutshell, was collecting travel and health information. But what really set alarms off, so to speak, uh, over the summer was 
what happened in, on June 28th, and, and this is something that I think is really understated, but I think it's part of the story for why ArriveCan um, became such a, a flashpoint in the cultural and political debates. And that's when the government introduced something that had absolutely nothing to do with COVID into the app. They introduced a customs and declaration form called Advanced CBSA Declaration into the app. When that happened, that caught my attention, and it really came across as the government trying to pull a fast one, because ArriveCan is mandatory through emergency public health legislation. You know, we download that on our phone, we put personal information into it, sensitive information into it, um, which gets uploaded to Amazon Web Services, and there's very little transparency about where the data goes and who handles the data. But at its core, it's mandated through this emergency legislation. And when the government introduced advanced CBSA declaration, which is this feature that's not at all related to public health, it really seemed like they were just trying to shoehorn a feature into the app. And that was really concerning because it really made apparent that the purpose of the app, the design for the app, was intended beyond the pandemic. Um, and that just, I think that just did everything to undermine trust um, in the app. Um, what made it worse for the government, unfortunately, is that when they, um, they unrolled that update on June 28th, they did so in a version of the app that actually contained a glitch. Yeah. And so about a week after that, the glitch that very famously started to afflict the app over the summer started, um, started sending those erroneous notifications. And, 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 and that was just a whole, a whole problem. So I think the fact that they tried to pull a fast one but then sort of got caught with this glitch, it just made ArriveCan a fiasco. Right. And I mean, in the past, you know, and you've written about this, I mean, but before the pandemic, there was something called, it was called e-declaration, where the idea of a streamlined or, or, you know, an app that people could use for customs or immigration declaration, that idea has been there. But obviously, ArriveCan is much different and much more than, than e-declaration, Right. It is. So ArriveCan has several different features, but what's really interesting about eDeclaration is it was a voluntary and separate app developed in 2018. When that June 28th update happened with Advanced CBSA Declaration, the very same day that that update was put into ArriveCan, eDeclaration was retired. So they basically mm. retired the app on the on the government website, and they shifted to using Advanced CBSA Declaration, which was inside of ArriveCan. So it's really interesting because eDeclaration was voluntary. It said you can use this if you want to use it, um, and, and that's really the right way to to get people to use it, right? Like uh, the analogy that I've drawn for a few of my friends is uh, like going into a McDonald's, and you know how they have the electronic um, board that you can order at, right. where you can sort of go up to the person. The election of the choice of technology is a really important part of the buy-in to the technology and the trust in the technology. Because if you're suddenly confronted with having to use a technology that you might struggle to use for all kinds of equity reasons um, based on you know, your background. ArriveCan is only available in three languages. Um, your access to Internet. You know, 12% of Canadians don't have a smartphone. 6% don't have an Internet connection. There's all kinds of these types of concerns that really make technology a bit frightening for these types of groups. But beyond that, if it's not transparent and it's not voluntary and it's something you're forced to do, that already is starting things off on the wrong foot. Because if the vaccine requirement is gone and then by extension the quarantine and all of that, 
why do we need a rive can at all? What purpose will it or could it serve after September 30th? That's a really good question. I I could only speculate, but my guess is that they're going to try to keep the customs and declaration, uh, customs and immigration declaration feature, and 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 try to uh, digitize that. You know, I think we all had, we all know these cumbersome paperwork forms, the E311, right? The classic form that you fill out on the plane just before you land, and then you, it's 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 paperwork. I think there is a a desire to digitize this paperwork. There is a desire to introduce efficiencies and introduce automation. And we've seen that throughout COVID-19, right? COVID-19 has been this opportunity to accelerate um, the government's, you know, delivery of services and products uh, through digital technologies. But when we do that, there needs to be sufficient oversight when we introduce them. And that's the irony here is the government has no shortage of lofty policy documents. It has no shortage of, you know, aspirational statements about how we want to have an open government or how we want to have um, whenever we use artificial intelligence or automated decision making, we're going to do it in a way that's open and, and builds trust. We've got so many of these types of documents. Um, the problem is with ArriveCAN and, and making ArriveCAN mandatory, all of these documents went out the window. And that's had a really, really scary precedent for how artificial intelligence and automated decision-making technologies might be deployed in the future in all kinds of ways, right? Mm-hmm. To, de- to decide who gets to have healthcare treatment, to decide um, you know, whether someone becomes a permanent resident or is granted refugee status. Artificial intelligence is being used in all of these types of services. And when we do that, it needs to be transparent and it needs to be accountable. Because if it's not, then you've got technology which is making decisions over citizens, which is governing citizens, without, um, you know, without any opportunity for citizens to seek redress for decisions that are unjust. And that is fundamentally the, the precedent that ArriveCAN was setting um, by defying these types of policies that we had in place. And I can, I think when I, when I started to look at some of the some of the specific pieces around the oversights in in ArriveCAN, it, it just it, that's where my research really my research interest really came in, because there's something called an algorithmic impact assessment. We use this assessment to look at risks of using AI, and ArriveCAN scored something like you know 30% on this assessment tool. It it did not have. It did not even log when decisions were being overridden. It, it didn't test for bias or discrimination. It was like a frightening report. Um, so the idea that all of your data is being used in this way by an uh, artificial intelligence, and not only used in that way, but it might even be making decisions that affect you, it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, that's the question. I mean, if, if ArriveCAN's going to be around for the long haul and the purpose of it is going to change, it doesn't make all these concerns go away. So what does the federal government need to do to address some of the issues around ArriveCAN? I think the voluntariness is the very first thing. So this is, the, this is a good move. I think if they want to continue to build, uh, build trust, they should really go towards transparency. There have been a lot of questions raised about the design of the app. Um, We don't really know who designed it. We know there are five companies that designed it, but they do appear to be sort of intermediary sort of contractor companies that may have only sort of subcontracted the design out to other parties. Um, That raises a lot of questions. I've filed probably 
two dozen access to information requests with the government for basic information about ArriveCan, like these contracts, for example. Um, none of those requests have been answered, and they've all gone past the legislated deadlines to respond to them. So I think transparency is really the first point. The government's also been adamant that it does not want to release the code for the app, and there's really no reason why the government should not do that. I think releasing the code would provide um, citizens an opportunity to really scrutinize for themselves whether the app is protecting their privacy, whether it is kind of providing the data security that they want. Um, you can really compare this with the COVID alert app um, at the start of the pandemic, which was released to notify people if they had a potential exposure. What was really groundbreaking with that app is that the code was made public. And it was made public, and the app was voluntary precisely to build trust in the app because there was a, a very clear public health purpose that we needed to serve with this app. And there was an awareness that the way to get buy-in from the population would be make it as transparent as possible. If people can assess for themselves, they can make their own decision. Now, it's interesting because that app did not succeed and people did not want that app on their phone. Right. And the app ultimately failed. <laughs> But that should also uh, be kind of indicative of how people feel about the government using these types of digital technologies when it comes to public health. I think the, the, real, the real concern, I think, is a long-term one in terms of what, what precedent ArriveCan has really set. I mean, the misuse of emergency powers in this way, where you folded in a customs and immigration declaration form into what was basically a health app, I mean how that undercuts public health discourse the next time you need to invoke that discourse is really concerning. And I think another concern is that the fact that the app sent glitches to people who properly use the app. So it sent glitches to people who were fully vaccinated, who used the app in the correct way. That completely undermines the government's use of technology to deliver services in the future. So I think the only thing they can do to improve trust is make it voluntary, which it looks like they're going to be doing, no false alarm, but then couple that with uh, transparency and accountability as much as you possibly can. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Malone, appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Yeah, of course. All the best. Thank you. That's uh, Matt Malone, law professor at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, as mentioned, has written extensively about uh, ArriveCan. His focus is in areas of trade secrets, confidential information. So right step to make it voluntary, but still some some big questions. I want to turn our attention to what's happening in Iran, uh, scenes that are both inspiring and, and I suppose worrisome as Iran's Revolutionary Guard is uh, threatening a further crackdown. We've heard reports uh, of dozens of civilian deaths as uh, protesters and police have crashed. But inspiring, as I say. In, in the way that uh, Iranians are saying enough is enough and pushing back against the regime. Now, this was all sparked by what happened last week. A 22-year-old woman by the name of Masa Amini was arrested by the notorious morality police. She was accused of not wearing her hijab properly. She was taken into custody and died uh, shortly thereafter. So her death, the circumstances of her arrest, is what sparked these protests. And in scenes that were maybe once unthinkable in that country, women taking to the streets in large numbers to remove their hijabs, to cut their hair. And obviously it's not just women now taking to the street, it's, uh, it's Iranians, men and women, 
who are saying enough is enough. And I think the Iranian government don't, is, is at a point where they're trying to figure out how to stop all of this. And so it's hard to say where this all goes from here. They've, they've tried to shut down the Internet, tried to keep a lid on, on information coming out of there. So it's becoming harder to follow. But the rest of the world is taking notice. We need to take notice of what's happening there. Joining us uh, to talk about how significant this is, maybe where things uh, are likely to go from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Roya Hakagi, an, an Iranian-American author, journalist, poet, human rights activist, was testifying before a congressional committee this week, in fact, uh, in Washington uh, on these developments. Roya, good to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Like I say, there's there's kind of that duality of emotion right now with you yep. know being inspired mm-hmm. by what we're seeing, but, but still being very worried at the same time. Where, where are you at? Uh, exactly where you are. Yeah. You you captured it really well. It's absolutely inspiring, and it's absolutely terrifying. And I'm not sure um, that you know the West, the U.S. is register are registering all this. Look, for over 20 years, we have been trying here in the United States to usher this moment through in Iran. Um, and we have been hoping to see Middle East change. What's very surprising to me is that why everybody in Washington is so unprepared for what's happening in Iran. Um, isn't this the dream that you you know that everybody wanted to see? Yeah. Uh, people in Iran are not burning American flags. They're burning their hijab. They're burning their headscarves. What feminist in the world? What woman? What democratic activist? What what human being uh, doesn't want to see people strive to gain their freedom? That's precisely what's happening in Iran. Um, you know, people have been chanting, "Our enemy is right here." They lie when they say it's the U.S. I mean, everything that the United States, that Americans have wished to happen in Iran for the past, you know, several decades is happening. The question is, why aren't we ready as Americans, as the U.S. government, to respond to this absolutely watershed moment? Let's talk about why it's happening. And, and obviously what happened to, to this young woman is, is horrifying. Uh, she's not the mm-hmm. first, obviously, you know, to, to be arrested for unsuitable attire, not, not the first, surely, to, to have died in custody under suspicious circumstances. But what, what's different now? Or what, why was this maybe the last straw for so many Iranians? Well, um, that's a wonderful question because it's it's one that I was asked yesterday at the Senate. It's one that I've asked myself, and I know that so many of us may be wishful thinking and calling this different, whereas it may not be. But every sign that I see points me to the direction that it, this is different. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't fail. Because every revolution, including the American Revolution, was helped by the outside world in order to succeed. Um, I mean, revolutions by people who are unarmed against adversaries that are armed to their teeth cannot succeed without other people coming together from around the world. Now, why is this different? I'll tell you. First of all, you know, in the past, we've had economic protests. People have poured to the streets because they were poor. They, you know, they had economic demands. They needed, um, in in some parts of Iran, they needed water because there was water shortage. Um, They were complaining about fuel prices. This isn't about that at all. This is about liberty. Uh, People are chanting woman, liberty, uh, life, 
it's precisely uh, you know the the um, equivalent of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with a small twist. Uh, instead of pursuit of happiness, they're chanting "woman" because they want women to become equal in order for the society to be able to pursue happiness. Um, that's one major difference. The other is that rural and urban are are both here in the picture. You know, in the past, you've had rural areas come out because they had their own demands in, you know, or, uh, you know, the youth in the urban areas come out because they had, you know, they wanted access to, uh, I don't know, internet or, you know, certain uh, demands that the rural people didn't necessarily uh, need to respond to. This time around, young, old, rich, poor, woman, man, you know, South Iran, North Iran, everybody everywhere is pouring onto the streets. And another thing is that they're no longer uh, willing to go home and and not face uh, the police and the violence. They are um, coming out and they are facing, you know, these thugs on the streets and they are fighting back. And, um, you know, what else, my question is, what else does a nation do in order to change its destiny. They're doing everything um, that, that everybody um, wants them wants to see happen in Iran. Um, we need to do what we did with Ukraine. They've risen up. They want to do what it takes to, to assure their own freedom. Um, but we need to provide them with support. Yeah, it's remarkable to see. I mean, I think it's now over 80 cities this has spread to. And, and it's harder to get information as, you know, obviously Iranian officials have moved to try to, to clamp down on the Internet and social media. But it's abundantly clear this is widespread. This is growing. There is some momentum for now, isn't there, on, on the side of the protesters? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, there is. But, um, and, and in fact, you can tell from the reaction of... Um, the Iranian president who is uh, here in New York for the General Assembly meeting of the United Nations because he said to all reporters, uh, I will only respond to questions about the nuclear deal, but I will not respond to questions about the protest. Obviously, what is he going to say? Um, so, so I think this has uh, taken the regime by surprise. And another really concerning issue for them must be the fact that, you know, during the Green Revolution in 2009, people were saying, where is my vote? They were simply complaining or demanding uh, the elections to not be rigged for their votes to count. This is different this time. They are directly addressing the Supreme Leader and they're asking him to step down. They're saying down to the dictator. That is a vastly different picture than, than the previous one 10 years ago. They're not, they're not trying to come to some kind of a reformist agreement from within the regime. They're done. And, and I don't know um, why we are not celebrating this moment, because this is precisely uh, what we always wanted to see. In terms of how the West can respond, I, I know one step might be to to finally list the Revolutionary Guards as, as a terrorist organization, and those calls have been there for years. Uh, maybe sanctions targeting the regime. In terms of directly supporting protesters, what, what would you like to see? Well, first of all, they you know with with all this technology that's available to us, they shouldn't be able to 
shut the internet down. I mean, that's incredibly, as you mentioned in your intro, incredibly concerning, very alarming, very dangerous. It, it speaks of them planning to go to, to want to go on a rampage of violence and, and killing. Yeah. Um, so we have to do everything in our power to assure that Iranians have access. I'm not a techie, I'm not a geek, but there are others who should be able to figure this out. Um, The second thing is we have to identify all of these um, bad actors inside Iran who are attacking the protesters, who are responsible for the killings. Um, We have to identify them. We have to name and shame them. We have to put their names on, on a sanction list. We have to make sure that people understand that as a democracy, um, we are here to protect all those who, who have democratic demands. I mean, uh, let's think about it. What else is left for the United States um, as a claim of leadership in the world, if, if not this? What else can the United States do uh, other than uh, support democratic movements when our leadership in so many other areas has been waning. Um, this is our moment. This is not just an Iranian moment. It's also an American moment. We, we don't want uh, military intervention. Well, Iranians are not asking for military intervention. They're asking for the United States, the, uh, for uh, the European Union and all powers around the world to press their oppressors in every way possible. And I think this is something that that we owe them because, um, you know, Ukraine is inspiring everybody uh, around the world and Iranians are responding. Um, and and we miss this moment. Well said. We'll watch closely in the coming days and weeks, but so much at stake here. Roy, I appreciate the insight and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Roya Hakaki, an Iranian-American uh, author, journalist, and a human rights activist. You can find her on Twitter, at Roya the Writer, uh, and uh, her website, RoyaHakakian.com. Uh, yeah, the stakes are high, and uh, the way the Iranian government is already responding suggests they realize, you know, this is an existential threat to them. But the brutality with which they're prepared to respond, it's, it's chilling to think. So some important days ahead there. Let's not lose sight of what's happening around with so much else going on in the world right now. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.